next to the tedium of a sea voyage, nothing on earth can be so tiresome as a description of it. The very incidents which a journal of such a pilgrimage commemorates show the dreadful state of vacuum and ennui which must have existed in the mind of the patient before such trifles could become of interest sufficient to be thought worthy of notation. A sail in sight, a bunch of seaweed floating past the ship, a log of wood covered in barnacles, or better still, one of the numerous tribe of Medusa with its snake-like feelers and changeable colors, a gull, a flock of Mother Carey's chickens paddling in the wake, are currents of sufficient importance to call upon deck all the passengers, even during dinner. Or, if they are happy enough to fall in, a shoal of porpoises and dolphins, a flock of flying fish or a whale blowing and spouting near the ship. Such a wonder is quite sufficient to furnish conversation for the happy beholders the rest of the voyage. For my own part, I make a vow whenever I go on board that nothing inferior in rank and dignity to a sea serpent shall ever induce me to mount the companion ladder. Dr. William Dunlop. A man of surpassing talent, knowledge, and benevolence, born in Scotland in 1792. He served in the army in Canada and in India and thereafter distinguished himself as an author and man of letters. He settled in Canada permanently in 1825 and for more than 20 years was actively engaged in public and philanthropic affairs. Succeeding his brother, Captain Dunlop, as member of the provincial parliament and taking successful interest in the welfare of Canada and died lamented by many friends, 1848. Or so reads The Good Doctor's Tombstone in Goderick, Ontario. Dr. William Tiger Dunlop was quite literally a legend in his own time, and it is said that people traveled far and wide on the off chance of crossing his path, perhaps for a handshake or the back end of some witty tale just out of earshot. Dunlop first sailed to Canada in the autumn of 1813. And those opening words recount the lackluster voyage he undertook from the Isle of Wight in the British Isles to Quebec to fight the War of 1812. He came as a medical officer in the 89th Queen's Regiment of Foot where he spent time from Quebec City all the way out to the deep snowy bush of Upper Canada, out here, nearby the foot of the rapids. Following the Treaty of Ghent, he and the regiment embarked from York in June of 1815, bound for Europe and the battlefield of Waterloo, which they just missed, but stood a guard post in Paris in the shaky aftermath of Napoleon's final downfall. He would serve duties in far-off India amidst the gaping embrace of the empire where he earned his nickname Tiger, apparently for his proficiency at slaying the now critically endangered monarch of the Big Cat family. After a sick leave layup on half pay in London, he would return to Canada in 1826 
a civilian, the Warden of the Forests, dabbling his hands in business, politics, and writing, his reputation an exceptional character growing all the time. He retired from public life in 1846 and penned his Recollections of the American War, from which we'll be drawing today. His tales and remembrances are often hilarious, to say the least. And why not? By this time, Dunlop was already a grumpy old man with nothing to prove and certainly nothing to lose after what he already called a most miscellaneous life. After studying his writing, I can say he was never shy of pointing out the ridiculous, even if it cost him criticizing extravagance and faults in systems, habits, and protocols. And in this sense, he is thoroughly unmilitary and truly a modern man. His ruminations are so rich, it was seemingly impossible to select only a few stories to feature here today. In the preface to the second edition of his Recollections, published in 1908, Canadian scholar A. H. Colquhoun would write, Quote, Dunlop's literary talents were considerable. He wearied of writing, as he did of most things that demanded continuous application. But he had an easy style, much shrewd wit, and undoubted ability. As a picture of the manner in which this haphazard war was conducted, it is singularly vivid and impressive. The unearthing of manuscripts and official documents about this war will not throw into clearer relief than the following pages do, the desperate circumstances under which a mere handful of French-Canadian and loyalist colonists emerged from their primitive villages and log cabins and with Spartan courage and hardihood drove back the invader again and again and captured large areas of his territory. There are several readable sketches of these campaigns, but none with the freshness and spirit of Dunlop's. In this lies its value and the justification for preserving it, unquote. Dr. Colquhoun, adding to the mythos of the militia in this great conflict, welcome to the foot of the rapids. This episode generously funded by the Daughters of 1812, and we thank you. If you wish to support this podcast, by all means, fortmegs.org. Again, welcome to the Foot of the Rapids as today we discover Dr. William Tiger Dunlop. The fact is, the Americans were deceived in all their schemes of conquest in Canada. The disaffected then as now were the loudest in their clamor, and a belief obtained among the Americans that they had only to display their colors to have the whole population flock to them. But the reverse of this was the case. They found themselves in a country so decidedly hostile that their retreating ranks were thinned by the peasantry firing on them from behind fences and stumps. It was evident that every man they met was an enemy. A quick word here from our doctor on the ocean of misunderstanding that stood between American and Canadian ideology before and then during the early stages of the war. Some early 19th century Americans apparently believed that the citizens of Canada were simply waiting to be liberated. 
that the war would be a mere matter of marching, and through social upheaval, Britain would be gone from North America. Certainly some members of the American national government believed this, and it can be inferred from his proclamation of July 1812 that General William Hull had similar notions upon entering Upper Canada for the first time. Quote, you will be emancipated from tyranny and oppression and restored to the dignified station of freemen, unquote. Large numbers of removed American loyalists had settled in Upper Canada, and as Dr. Dunlop points out, these stalwart British subjects wanted nothing to do with the new United States after the American Independence War. Why would they suddenly, 30 years later, throw up their arms and rejoice in the embrace of the eagle? But not all relationships between Americans and Canadians were hostile. In the isolated borderlands, people were linked by years and years of business, trade, family, and intermarriage. This trade would continue after the declaration of war, now with nominal enemies. Smuggling between the warring nations would become a large problem, particularly in the District of Maine, Vermont, and upstate New York, where citizens in complete opposition to the war to begin with saw fit to carry on business as usual the American war effort be damned. They had had good practice in smuggling, going back to 1807 and the Embargo Act that crippled a good percentage of the workforce in these areas. So the well-worn paths and greased palms of a black market ramp up again. And Dr. Dunlop has a good story on the subject. While sitting at dinner one day, tete-a-tete with the colonel, his servant announced that a gentleman wanted to see him. As the word gentleman on this side of the Atlantic conveys no idea of either high birth or high breeding, nor even of a clean shirt, my friend demanded what kind of gentleman, as like a sensible man as he was, he didn't wish to be interrupted in the pleasant occupation of discussing his wine or listening to my agreeable conversation by a gentleman who possibly might ask him if he wished to buy any eggs, as many species of the genus of gentlemen on the side of the herring pond might possibly deem a good and sufficient reason for intruding on his privacy. His servant said he believed he must be a kind of Yankee gentleman, for he wore his hat in the parlor and spit on the carpet. He was ordered to be admitted, and the colonel telling me that he suspected this must be one of his beef customers, requested I would not leave the room, as he wished a witness to the bargain he was about to make. Accordingly, there entered a tall, good-looking, middle-aged man, dressed in a blue something, that might have been a cross between a surtout and a greatcoat, who was invited to sit down and fill his glass, when the following dialogue took place. I'm a major of Vermont State, and I would like to speak to the colonel in private, I guess, on, on particular business. Anything you have to say to me, sir, may be said with perfect safety in the presence of this gentleman. I'm a little in the smuggling line, I reckon. Aye, and pray what have you smuggled? Kettle, I reckon. I heard that the colonel wanted some very bad. So I just brought a hundred of them across at St. Regis, as fine critters, Colonel, as ever had hair on them. 
So I drove them right up. The colonel can look at them himself. They're right here at the door. Well, what price do you ask for them? Well, colonel, I expect about the same as other folks gets, I, I conclude. That is but reasonable. You shall have it. The commissary of the post was sent for, and having been previously warned not to be very scrupulous in expecting the drove, as it was infinitely more important to get the army supplied than to obtain them at the very lowest rate per head, he soon returned with a bag of half-eagles and paid the major the sum demanded. The latter, after carefully counting the coin, returned it into the canvas bag, and opening his coat displayed inside the rest of it a pocket about the size of a haversack, into which he dropped his treasure. Then, deliberately buttoning it up from the bottom to the throat, he filled the glass with wine and took our healths, adding, Well, Colonel, I must say you are a Lee T, the genteelest man to deal with I ever met, and I'll tell all my friends how handsome you behaved to me, and I'm glad of it, for their sakes as well as my own, for just as I was fixing to start from St. Regis, my friend, Colonel, arrived with 300 head more. The kettle aren't hisn. They belong to his father, who is our senator. They do say that it is wrong to supply an enemy. And I think so too. But I don't call that man my enemy who buys what I have to sell and gives a genteel price for it. We have worse enemies than you Britishers. So I hope the Colonel will behave all the same as well to them as he's done for me. But there was no harm in having the first in the market, you know, Colonel. So with a duck that was intended for a bow and a knowing grin that seemed to say, I was just as safe to secure my money before giving you this piece of information, he took his leave and departed. Evidently as much pleased with the success of his negotiation. For some reason, and no insult to Vermonters, my imagination always pictures this Yankee gentleman as looking and sounding like the old actor Hank Warden, if you remember who that is. Uh, he showed up a lot in old Western movies, often playing the local dimwit, and he played it well. I just wish I could do his voice a little better. But we can see with this silly characterization and dialogue the level of disdain and low opinion Dr. Dunlap seems to have held for Americans. We need to take advantage of the fact that we are exploring the memories of a medical man and study and discover what we can about battlefield medicine of this time. It is brutal in all wars. And the following scenes come from that dreadful summer of 1814 on the Niagara frontier. An officer who had come from the field on the spur advised me to stay where I was and get my hospital in readiness. Accordingly, upon inquiring where my wounded were to be put, I was shown a ruinous fabric built of logs called Butler's Barracks from having been built during the Revolutionary War by Butler's Rangers for their temporary accommodation. 
Nothing could be worse constructed for a hospital for wounded men. Not that it was open to every kind of wind that blew, for at midsummer in Canada there is rather an advantage. But there was a great want of room, so that many had to be laid on straw on the floor. And these had the best of it, for their comrades were put into berths one above the other, as in a transport or packet, where it was impossible to get around them to dress their wounds, and their removal gave them excruciating pain. In the course of the morning, I had my hands full enough. Wagon after wagon arrived, and before midday I found myself in charge of 220 wounded, including my own regiment, prisoners, and militia with no one to assist me but my hospital sergeant, who, luckily for me, was a man of sound sense and great experience, who made a most able second. But with all this, the charge was too much for us, and many a poor fellow had to submit to amputation, whose limb might have been preserved had there been only time to take reasonable care of it. But under the circumstances of the case, it was necessary to convert a troublesome wound into a simple one or to lose the life of the patient from want of time to pay him proper attention. One of the many blunders of this blundering war was that the staff of the army was never where it was wanted. The medical and commissariat staffs, for instance, were congregated at the headquarters at Quebec, where they were in redundancy, with nothing for them to do, while a staff surgeon and a hospital mate were all that was allowed for the army of the right. There's hardly on the face of the earth a less enviable situation than that of an army surgeon after a battle, worn out and fatigued in body and mind, surrounded by suffering, pain, and misery, much of which he knows it is not in his power to heal or even to assuage. While the battle lasts, these all pass unnoticed, but they come before the medical man afterwards in all their sorrow and horror, stripped of all the excitement of the heady fight. It would be a useful lesson to cold-blooded politicians who calculate on war costing so many lives and so many limbs, as they would calculate on a horse costing so many pounds, or that to the thoughtless at home, whom the excitement of a gazette or the glare of an illumination more than reconciles to the expense of a war to witness such a scene, if only for one hour. This simple and obvious truth was suggested to my mind by the exclamation of a poor woman, I had 220 wounded turned upon me that morning, and among others an American farmer, who had been on the field either as a militiaman or a camp follower. He was nearly 60 years of age, but of a most Herculean frame. One ball had shattered his thigh bone and another lodged in his body, the last obviously mortal. His wife, a respectable elderly looking woman, came over under a flag of truce and immediately repaired to the hospital where she found her husband lying on a truss of straw, writhing in agony, for her sufferings were dreadful. Such an accumulation of misery seemed to have stunned her, for she ceased wailing, sat down on the ground, and, taking her husband's head on her lap, continued long moaning and sobbing, while the tears flowed fast down her face. She seemed for a considerable time in a state of stupor, Still awakened by a groan from her unfortunate husband, she clasped her hands, and looking wildly around exclaimed, Oh, that the king and the president 
We're both here this moment to see the misery that quarrels lead to. They surely would never go to war again without a cause that they could give as a reason to God at the last day for thus destroying the creatures that he hath made in his own image. In an hour and a half, the poor fellow ceased to suffer. I never underwent such fatigue as I did for the first week at Butler's Barracks. The weather was intensely hot, the flies were in myriads, and lighting on the wounds, depositing their eggs so that maggots were bred in a few hours, producing dreadful irritation. So that long before I could go round dressing the patients, it was necessary to begin again. And as I had no assistant but my sergeant, our toil was incessant. For two days and two nights, I never sat down. When fatigued, I sent my servant down to the river for a change of linen, and having dined and dressed, went back to my work refreshed. In the morning of the third day, however, I fell asleep on my feet, with my arm embracing the post of one of the berths. It was found impossible to awaken me, so a truss of clean straw was laid on the floor, which I was deposited, and a hospital rug thrown over me. And there I slept soundly for five hours without ever turning. Many weeks later, outside of Fort Erie, in the waning days of the protracted siege there, Dr. Dunlop would oversee the final hours of an American officer, Eliezer Darby Wood, a name quite familiar to us here at the foot of the rapids. Wood was the engineer largely responsible for the design of Fort Meigs and oversaw its construction and participated in its defense. After the action was over and was drawing towards dusk, I rapidly traversed the ground with a strong party to look out for the wounded. Finding only a few of the enemy, I ordered them to be carried to the hospital, but I proceeded them to make preparations for their reception. When nearing the camp, I found a party of the band of our regiment carrying in a blanket an American officer mortally wounded, who was greedily drinking water from one of the soldiers' canteens. I ordered them to lay him down and set myself to dress his wound. He calmly said, Doctor, it's all in vain. My wound is mortal, and no human skill can help me. Leave me here with a canteen of water nearby. Save yourself. You are surrounded. The only chance of escape is to take to the woods in a northerly direction, and then make your way east to Queenston. There is not a man of your army who can escape. I am not at liberty to tell you more. I, however, ordered the men to carry him to a hut belonging to an officer of my own regiment, who undertook to sit by him till my return. After he had been put to bed, I left him, and when I returned during the night from hospital, he was dead. He proved to be Colonel Wood of the American Engineers, a man equally admired for his talents and revered for his virtues. His calmness and courage in the hour of death with his benevolence and kindness to myself and others, who were doing any little they could do to render his last moments easy, convinced me that he deserved the high character which all his brother officers that I afterwards met with uniformly gave him.
We owe it to ourselves to lighten the mood just now, after heavy hands deliver us these wrenching tales of death, loss, suffering, and grief. But well worth the peek inside the hardships faced by the medical service from this time. And so we turn to another favorite subject of good Dr. Dunlop, women. And this story is not a romantic one, but more farcical in nature. It tells of a Miss Peggy Bruce, a tough old frontier dame with a fancy for military men and believing herself something of a country physician. While amateur hour might enrage professionals of the medical practice, this was not atypical of the Frontier War of 1812, where medical personnel were in short supply and any anatomical knowledge at all might be put to good use. We catch up to the doctor in Cornwall, wintering over with the good lady at her fine tavern. I would do gross injustice to my reader, no less than to myself, were I to quit Cornwall without mentioning a most worthy personage, who, though in a humble station, was one of the best and most original characters I ever met with in my progress through life. This was none other than my worthy hostess, the principal log hotel, Peggy Bruce. She possessed all the virtues of her prototype, all her culinary talents, all her caprice with guests she did not take a fancy for, and all powers offensive or defensive, by tongue or by broom, as the case in hand rendered the one or the other more expedient. Bred in the army, she still retained her old military predilection, and a scarlet coat was the best recommendation to her good offices. It was my luck, good or bad as the reader may be inclined to determine, to be a prodigious favorite with the old lady. But even favor with the ladies has its drawbacks and inconveniences, and one of these with me was being dragged to the bedside of every man, woman, and child who was taken ill in or about the village. At first, I remonstrated against my being appointed physician extraordinary to the whole parish, with which I was in no way connected. But Peggy found an argument which, as it seemed perfectly satisfactory to herself, had to content me. What the devil does the king pay you for? if you are not to attend to his subjects when they require your assistance. I once and only once outwitted her. She woke me out of a sound sleep a little after midnight to go and see one of her patients. Having undergone great fatigue the day before, I felt very unwilling to get up. At first, I meditated a flat refusal, but I could see with half a glance that she anticipated my objections for I saw her eye fix itself on a large ewer of water in the basin stand, and I knew her too well for a moment to suppose that she would hesitate to call in the aid of the pure element to enforce her arguments. So I feigned compliance, but pleaded the impossibility of my getting up while there was a lady in the room. Well, this appeared only reasonable, so she lit my candle and withdrew to the kitchen fire while I was at my toilet. Her back was no sooner turned than I rose, double-locked and bolted the door, and retired again to rest, leaving her to storm in the passage, and ultimately to knock up one of the village doctors, whose skill she was well persuaded was immeasurably inferior to any medical man who wore his majesty's uniform. But though I chuckled at my success, I had to be most weary how I approached her, 
and many days elapsed before I ventured to come within broom's length of the old dame. At last, I appeased her wrath by promising never in like case to offend, and so obtained her forgiveness, and was once more taken into favor. But Peggy was too old a soldier to be taken in twice, or to trust the promise of a sleepy man that he would get up. Well, after this, when she required my services, she would listen to no apology on the score of modesty, but placing her lantern on my table, waited patiently till I was dressed, and tucking up her gown through her pocket holes and taking my arm, we paddled away through the mud in company. After reaching the house of the patient, and after the wife and daughter had been duly scolded for their neglect in not calling in her sooner, we entered into consultation, which, like many other medical consultations, generally ended in a difference of opinion. At the head of her medical dicta was that it was essential to support the strength, that was, to cram the patient with every kind of food that by entreaty or importunity he could be prevailed upon to swallow, a practice, by the way, of more learned practitioners than Peggy. A hot bath with herbs infused in it was another favorite remedy, and on this we were more at one, for the bath would most likely do good and the herbs no harm. Her concluding act at the breaking up of the consultation was generally to dive into the recesses of a pair of pockets of the size and shape of saddlebags, from which, among other miscellaneous contents, she would fish up a couple of bottles of wine, which she deemed might be useful to the patient. After we had finished business, I escorted the old lady home, where there was always something comfortable kept warm for supper, which, when we had discussed together, with something of a stiffish horn of hot brandy and water, we departed to our respective dormitories. For our final great story this session, and my favorite from the collection, we turn deep into the Western War Front for the 1812 conflict, a place a bit closer to our base here at the foot of the Maumee Rapids. This is a tale of the cold in the wet, snowy underforest of the Canadian wilderness. To give a little backstory, the British, after their defeat and removal from Lake Erie, tried to establish new bases and shipyards on Lake Huron, higher up the system of lakes, to supply their northern bases. A road needed to be cut through the dense forests of Upper Canada from Lake Simcoe to Penetanguishene where such a base was hoped to thrive at the southern tip of the Georgian Bay. In the winter of 1814-1815, found our good doctor there amongst a company of Canadian fencibles and militia, hacking at the trees and constructing bridges, hoping for warmth and again a fine shelter, and as always, cursing the Americans. When we were about six or seven miles from the end of our task, I started along the line to view the harbor. In Canada, the line is marked through the forest by what is termed a surveyor's blaze, and except to a practiced eye, it is easily lost. I had proceeded along at some miles when a covey of partridges crossed my path. I immediately followed them, and after shooting several and losing sight of the rest, I took off in the direction in which I thought I should again cross the blaze. All my efforts to find it, however, were unavailing. 
and as the sun was fast declining, I had no other shift than to go back on my own steps through the snow. I had every motive to exertion, and about sunset I found myself about a mile and a quarter from the camp, but it grew so dark that I could trace my way no further. I therefore halted, and having beat a path of about twenty yards in length in the snow, I walked backwards and forwards, determined to keep moving all night. This resolution I kept up some hours, but at last I got so sleepy that I could persevere no longer. Besides, I felt that stupor coming over me, which makes men indifferent as to their fate. I therefore determined to use my remaining energies in giving myself every chance of life that circumstances would admit of. I took off my snowshoes and poured a quantity of rum into my moccasins. I buttoned my jacket, secured my fur cap about my ears, drew on my fur gloves, and calling a little dog that I had made him lie on top of it all. I slept most intensely sound, nor did I wake till the morning sun was at least an hour high. After two or three attempts, I managed to rise. My feet were frozen, and one of my hands slightly so, but both were so benumbed that I could not fasten on my snowshoes. I therefore had to stick my toes in the holes of them and shuffle along as best I could. It had snowed about four inches during the night, which was all in my favor. I managed to scramble on towards the camp, but could not manage more than a quarter of a mile an hour. On my arrival there, some old French Canadians undertook the medical treatment of my case. They stripped off my moccasins and stockings and commenced rubbing my feet with snow. If there was any pain in being frozen, I was insensible to it. But of all the tortures this world can devise, the resuscitation was the worst I ever experienced. It was that abominable sensation called tingling in an extreme degree, to such an extent indeed that it more than once produced fainting, which unpleasant symptom they combated by pouring down my throat a tin cup full of rum. When the pain abated, they enveloped my feet in poultices of boiled beech leaves, which they conceive the sovereignest thing in life in such cases. I was confined in my bed for three weeks, and then was only able to go abroad by swathing my feet in numerous folds of blankets. In a few weeks more, I was as well as ever. The poor little dog, Moses, the companion of all my suffering, was not so fortunate. He reached the camp with difficulty and died the very next day.